He'd hardly slept a wink. Yesterday, he'd been caught red-handed, embezzling the company's money, fiddling the accounts. And now he'd been summoned to see the boss, who he knew would throw the book at him. He'd lose his job. And if that were to happen, it would be probable he'd lose his house as well. Would his wife stick with him or leave taking the children with her? He came into his boss's office and there were a number of people already there. His manager, the secretary, and some of his work colleagues. This was worse than he'd expected. And the boss quizzed him why he'd stolen the money. Wasn't he paid well enough for the job that he was asked to do? Didn't he realize this was a criminal matter? It was eventually all too much. He burst into tears and started to beg his boss not to call the police. And to the absolute amazement of everyone in the room, the boss agreed. He wouldn't refer the matter to the police. Furthermore, the debt was written off. He wouldn't expect him to pay any of the money he'd lost. And he could keep his job. Well, the man could not believe his good fortune. He dried his eyes and walked out of the boss's office, followed by everyone else. Wow. But then, just outside on the corridor, the man bumped into one of his junior staff, a young woman who he had lent a small sum of money the week before. She hadn't yet paid him back. Imagine the reaction of everybody when rather than passing on the goodwill he'd just received, the man started to shout and swear at the young woman, demanding the money right there, right now. He made such a noise, it disturbed the boss in his office. He opened his door to find out what on earth was going on. His colleagues quickly explained what had happened. The boss immediately summoned him back into his room. I let you off every penny of all you had stolen from me, as well as forgiving your dishonesty, letting you keep your job. You couldn't even let someone off a small debt. Well, that's it. I'm immediately going to report your theft to the police, and I shall seek repayment of every penny. I expect to see that you receive the heaviest sentence possible. And this is how God will treat everyone who does not forgive others with all of their heart. Thank you, Tim. Ruth Dudley Edwards wrote a feature article in the Daily Telegraph entitled, Humbled by the Courage of Those Who Choose to Forgive. And she wrote of 77-year-old uh, uh, Jared Machen, who failed to return home one evening in December 2011. And uh, his wife, Patricia, went to search for him and she found him in a pool of blood. He'd uh, just been knocked down by a rather distraught 29-year-old driver, Brian Williamson. Although her husband died in this accident, his wife showed none of the anger which might have been expected. And when the Crown Prosecution Service wrote to her to say that she might be disappointed that Williamson was only to be charged with careless driving, she responded with these words. I assume this to mean that you expect me to have wished for a harsher charge to have been brought against him. 
nothing could be further from the truth. And Mrs. Machin wrote uh, uh, Williamson a letter to use in his defence. And she said that on the day of the accident, however bad it was for me, I realised that it was a thousand times worse for you. Her letter astonished the defence counsel who said that he struggled to find words to express what she wrote and Williamson received a suspended sentence. The Telegraph journalist, in her quite excellent article, asks, but why were people so astonished? Mrs. Machin and her late husband were Christians who really lived up to their beliefs. Williamson had meant no harm, and there was no doubt about his remorse. Yet the assumption by the CPS is that victims are unforgiving and punitive, whatever the circumstances. She continued in this article saying, I am an atheist, but I prize the Christian heritage. In the many decades in which as a historian and journalist I've striven to understand Northern Ireland, I've often been humbled by the way in which bereaved people set out to forgive, uh, forgive those who had caused them terrible heartache. I know widows whose husbands were murdered, who have listened to the words of the Gospels in which they believed and taken to heart such words as, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. They have seen walking down their streets the man they believe shot their husband in cold blood and they have said a prayer and set their faces against vengeance. Now, that article was quite a brilliant article and uh, a lot longer than that. But there was an irony in that article which grabbed me. First of all, we have a grieving widow who forgives the man who killed her husband through reckless driving. And she writes to the court in his defence. Secondly, we have the, the Crown Prosecution Service uh, who writes to that widow stating that she might actually be disappointed... Uh, as the man charged with, uh, is, is only being charged with careless driving and not given a harsher sentence. And then thirdly, we have this atheist reporter who writes that we should not be surprised at all, for after all, isn't that what Christians are supposed to do, based on the teaching of Jesus? And I suppose what really spoke to me in that story was not so much the forgiveness of uh, Mrs. Machin towards Brian Williamson, as I could imagine probably with God's help, that many of us would have reacted in a similar gracious manner to, the, uh, to that man who, who, who killed uh, by accident and was truly heartbroken by his actions. I suppose the greater challenge comes when the deed is intended or the culprit is not repentant. But that aside, the thing that spoke to me most was the expectation for revenge that is so intrinsic within our society. That's the thing that spoke to me most from that story. You see, the Crown Prosecution Service just assumed that this lady would be very angry at the fact that uh, Brian Williamson had such a light sentence. But because this, this wonderful Christian lady stood tall as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, against their expectation, it became a newsworthy story. Nelson Mandela, the first black president of South Africa, helped defeat the injustice of apartheid through forgiveness. 
Despite his acknowledged mistakes earlier in life, uh, he was a man who captured the imagination and the admiration and the attention of the world. And the most powerful aspect to his legacy was his forgiveness to his political enemies. 27 years in prison, he came to power. And he didn't use his power to exact vengeance, but he used his power to reunite a, a nation by modeling um, forgiveness and reconciliation. And I think the forgiveness often surprises us. Forgiveness can take our breath away. And that's what we find this morning in this story, this parable of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. And in this chapter, Jesus teaches us that forgiveness is one of the defining characteristics of children of his kingdom, of people who are part of his kingdom, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. And following Jesus' instruction in this chapter, earlier in this chapter, how Christians should relate to one another, Jesus then tells this powerful story on why we must forgive. But it all starts with the question that Peter asked to him in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? You see, the rabbis of the time taught that you were to forgive up to three times. If someone does something against you, you forgive them. If they do it again, you forgive them again. And if they do it a third time, you forgive them again. If they do it a fourth time, you don't forgive them at all. And uh, that is because they are probably taking advantage of you. And that was the kind of thinking that was going on, as we might say around these parts. Are they having a laugh? Yeah? That's the kind of uh, approach that we would sometimes take. But Peter, big-hearted, magnanimous Peter, doubled that number, adds one for good measure, and he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times, thinking that he was going to get a well done from Jesus. But you see, God's kingdom, in God's kingdom, forgiveness totally exceeds Peter's ideal. And Jesus answered him in the following verse, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, some translators believe that the term that Jesus used there was not actually 70 times seven, but uh, 77, but 70 times seven. But Jesus was telling us that we shouldn't be counting. It's not a matter of uh, that's 489 times you've offended me or hurt me. Uh, just one more and you've had it. You know, that's it. No more. But what Jesus was speaking about here is unlimited forgiveness. Stop keeping track. Stop trying to put a cap on God's forgiveness. Stop counting. And then Jesus tells this incredible story in Matthew chapter 18. He starts with the words, Therefore the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've said many times over this series that these parables are stories of the revolution. God's revolution. A revolution of kindness, a revolution of mercy, a revolution of grace, a revolution of forgiveness, which this story is all about. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. 
At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all of your debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Some amazing truths in this story. And the first one is that God has forgiven us an unpayable debt. If you this morning are a person who has trusted in Jesus as your Lord, then that is something that you can say about yourself, that God has forgiven me an unpayable debt. The story that Jesus told starts in the throne room of the king. And that's important because on this subject of forgiveness, when it comes to forgiveness, it's always the place that we need to start. And yet many people seem to start with a long list of the ways that people have hurt us. No, we start in the throne room of the king. We start by reminding ourselves of who he is and who we are in relationship to him. And in this story, we are the first servant. The first servant who owes that king 10,000 talents of gold. Now, one talent was equal to about 20 years wages for a laborer. And if you take the UK average wage as a guide... That would be the equivalent today in our culture, in our times, of about 2.5 billion pounds. So in the story of Jesus, this is an unpayable amount. And that exactly is the point that Jesus is making. There is no way on earth that this guy is going to be able to pay back that debt. Far beyond anything that he is able to pay. I heard a story recently of a guy from the, the Bronx in New York City... In 2012, he was admitted into hospital and he was being treated there for pneumonia and uh, asthma. And he was expecting the bill to be around about $300. And the bill arrived in the post and it was a little bit more than he'd expected. It, it wasn't the $300 he had expected. It was uh, $44,760,587. You know, just put yourself in this guy's shoes for the moment. When he'd opened up the bill, he'd almost had a heart attack, but then realized he couldn't afford a heart attack, so he didn't have one. But it turned out to be okay in the end. Uh, the hospital admin department had mistakenly inserted the invoice numbers into the amount owed section on the bill. I suppose it's easily done. But in Jesus' story, there is 
no error whatsoever in the billing. This was an unpayable amount. And that's part of the story. And that's what Jesus intended us to see. And Jesus uses this story as a picture of our relationship with God. That everyone is in the same position. And that when we come to settle accounts, one day when we meet him face to face, we are in that position too. You see, God has created us. He has given us life. He sustains us every day. He has put breath in our lungs. How do we often respond? Well, we responded by violating his commands, by ignoring him, by disregarding his guidelines. We have made other gods for ourselves by worshipping created things, not least money. We have known what is right and we have failed to do it. We have known what is wrong and we have succumbed to it. Even the good things that we have done are often marred by wrong intentions and selfish ambitions. To use the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, that none is righteous, no, not one, that we have fallen short of the glory of God, that we have fallen short, every one of us in this room today, we have fallen short of his perfect standards. And our sin has left us indebted to God. And we are just like that first servant, that we owe God and what we owe him is well, 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 well beyond our ability to pay. And we're all in the same boat. But just as the king in Jesus' story, our king, God, is merciful. The servant fell on his knees. He begged the king to be patient with him. And it's quite pathetic here, the, the story that we read. He's even foolish enough to suggest that one day he'll be able to pay back this debt. But the king doesn't allow him to even try. After all, this man was no more able to pay back 10,000 talents of gold than we would be able to pay back 2.5 billion pounds. The king doesn't work out some installment plan with interest. He just wipes the slate clean. He wipes the slate clean. Not because the guy deserved it, he didn't. This was nothing at all to do with the man. But it was everything to do with God. He was forgiven because the king was merciful. Isn't that a wonderful picture? We've been singing this morning about God's mercy and grace. Isn't that a wonderful picture of what God has done for us, all of us, through Jesus Christ? He's completely cancelled our guilt. We're debt free. And that's a gift that he offers to everyone. A debt which was too great for us to pay, a debt which has been paid by Jesus. Are we undeserving? You bet we are. Are we unworthy? Yes. But we're also forgiven. Praise God. I love that song. I know we, we, we don't sing it so much these days, but only by grace can we enter. Only by grace can we stand. Not by human endeavor, but by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, if you marked our transgressions, who would stand? Well, the answer to that we know is no one. Thanks to your grace, we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And in one sense, this story that Jesus tells doesn't even come close to what God has done for us through Christ. For God has not only cancelled our debt, but he has paid our debt with his own life. Another grand old song. Uh, one wonderful grace. Do you remember that one? Wonderful grace that gives what I don't deserve, pays me what Christ has earned, then lets me go free. 
wonderful grace that gives me the time to change, washes away my stains that once covered me. And that's what we see in this story is grace, it's mercy. And that's what we have received ourselves, that God has forgiven us that unpayable debt. What else do we see? The second thing that we see in this story is that the way that we have been forgiven by God must, must shape how we forgive others. The way that we have been forgiven by God must shape how we forgive others. Question for you. If you had been in that man's shoes, if you had been let off the hook of a lifetime imprisonment, what would you be doing with your life? Just think about that for a moment. Maybe you'd start by taking all your, all your friends out for dinner, a slap-up meal. Maybe you'd start buying gifts for everyone you know. Maybe you'd make your life count for something. You'd be a person who was rejoicing and praising and thanking God. And probably all of the above and lots and lots more. This man was given his life back. And this is the incredible disconnect that happens in this story. The disconnect that what happened in the throne room of the king to what happens on the street. We are told that this guy who had been let off a humongous, unpayable debt sees a fellow servant who, who owes him 100 denarii. Again, that's not a term which is known to us in modern culture, in, in, in British life. So that, that working it out in modern standards. This other person owed him maybe three or four thousand pounds. It's not an insignificant amount, but in comparison to the debt that he had wiped off, five or 2.5 billion pounds, it was absolutely peanuts. Then the story turns ugly. He grabbed the other guy, he begins to choke him, demanding that he paid back all that he owed. We are told that the other servants, looking on at this, were outraged at what had happened, and they reported the incident back to the king. The attitude of this guy, I don't know if you're with me in this, but it makes your blood boil. And sometimes, occasionally, you see kind, that kind of character around. And I'm just getting a little bit hot under the collar just thinking about this. But that was Jesus' intention. That is exactly how Jesus wants us to feel as we are hearing this story. You see, it's interesting to note that this second servant uses essentially the same words as the first servant before the king in verse 29 there. He says, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Now one might think that when he heard those words, those very same words that he had used before the king, that he would have been reminded of something. He would have been reminded of the mercy that the king had shown him and therefore he should show mercy to this second servant. But no, that wasn't the case. There's no connection whatsoever in his mind with what had happened to him and what he was now doing. And he throws this man in prison. Sometimes we can lock people in prisons too. We can lock people in prisons of unforgiveness. And in doing so, we also lock ourselves up. You see, when we become imprisoned emotionally, we allow that other person to live rent-free in our heads. That's what we do. In a sense, we're not affecting them, really. 
but we are affecting ourselves more so. And we allow them to live rent-free in our heads. And as Nelson Mandela put it brilliantly, resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping that it will kill your enemies. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And it isn't long before we become spiritually barren, no longer experiencing the presence and the power of God in our lives. Sadly, I have seen that so many times over the years where someone has not been able to forgive another person and by holding on to that, they have not hugely affected the person that they're holding in this prison of unforgiveness, but they've affected themselves very, very deeply. It's made a huge difference to their lives. They've lost that sense of the presence and the power of God in their lives. The king then says, You wicked servant, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And the mistake that we all make when it comes to forgiveness is that we make forgiveness all about them. We focus on the person who has wronged us. We focus on whether they deserve our forgiveness or not. Whether they are sorry enough to be forgiven. Did they apologize sincerely enough? Did they grovel on their knees enough? We make it all about them. But you see, the point of this story is that for people of God's kingdom, it's never about them. It's always about him. That's the difference. It's not about them. It's about him. It's about God. It's about his forgiveness. It's about his mercy. And people sometimes hurt us, and some of them I know will come and acknowledge their, uh, th their wrongdoing. They will come and apologize, but others will never ever say sorry. But that does not give us license to be bitter or unforgiving or angry. Because my response to the hurt is not focused on their repentance or their apology or lack of it, but my response is focused on God as the one who has wiped my slate clean. My focus is on God who shapes my idea of what forgiveness is like. Paul writes in uh, Colossians chapter 3 verse 13, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So, in which way did the Lord forgive you? Begrudgingly? No. Half-heartedly? No. Did he say to us, well, I, I might be able to forgive you one day, but I won't forget, you know. Uh, that's the sort of thing that I often hear people say. No. He forgives us completely. He has removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. He has promised to remember our sins no more. So Paul says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And when we think of it, on the face of it, it's quite an unnatural act, isn't it, this, this, this forgiveness? Because everything within us fights against that. 
And offering to forgive people who we think don't deserve it is probably one of the hardest things that we as Christians have to do. And it was C.S. Lewis who once said that we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. (laughs) Isn't that right? You know, we can know what the Bible teaches on this. We can quote chapter and verse. We can do Bible studies on forgiveness. It's a beautiful concept until you have to actually practice it. And it's not so easy. And forgiveness isn't easy. And some of you this morning, I know, might be carrying wounds inflicted by others. And those wounds run very deep in your lives. But please, please, please do not confuse the issues here. To forgive someone does not mean that we condone their actions. We are not saying that what they have done is no big deal. Because many of the things done against us or said about us are a big deal. It may be that we have been on the receiving end of lies or slander or gossip. It's very painful. It's a big deal. Maybe we have been on the receiving end of physical abuse or sexual abuse. It's a big deal. To forgive isn't downplaying what has been done against us. And it is most certainly not approving of someone's sin. And neither does forgiveness mean that there shouldn't be any consequences for that sin. You know, if someone is a drunk driver, then I think it's a good thing that they get arrested and they get a driving ban by the authorities. I think that's a good thing. If someone is arrested for aggravated burglary, they will face the consequences of their actions. And good too. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we should entrust ourselves to a person who has previously wronged us. You know, Dan's not around today, so I can talk about him. (laughs) You know, if I lent my car to Dan who gets drunk and crashes my car, that's never going to happen. You know that, don't we? I must forgive him. But that doesn't mean I'm going to be lending him my car anytime soon. Yeah, you get the idea? And the kingdom of God is God's revolution. God's revolution of goodness, grace, kindness, mercy, compassion, forgiveness on earth. And there is nothing, nothing, nothing more revolutionary than forgiving someone who doesn't deserve to be forgiven. And yet that is our calling as Christians, as people who are children of this kingdom. Thirdly, if I won't forgive, God won't forgive me. Verse 32. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Now, we might wince at that part of the story and think, hey, this is gentle Jesus, meek and mild here. What's going on? This, This Jesus who showed such mercy and compassion, don't like much of the way that he's talking here. We need to remember, by the way, that all of the parables are stories. And we mustn't take every detail of stories that Jesus told literally. 
Torture actually was forbidden by Jewish law, so Jesus was not meaning this in a literal way. And what Jesus was doing was using hyperbole. He was speaking of, uh, in this way as, a, as an overstatement, was an exaggeration in order to get his message home. And I think the following verse helps us understand this in verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. And the point that Jesus is making here is that there is a link between the way that we forgive or maybe the way that we don't forgive and God's forgiveness of us. And we see that as well in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But why is it that Jesus links our forgiving other people and his forgiving of us? And the answer to that, I believe, is that God wants us to be free. God wants us to be free of the baggage that will hinder us as citizens of his kingdom. And not forgiving another person is out of God's will for us. And to be out of God's will, another word for that is a sin. Like any other sin. It tarnishes our relationship with God. And just like any other sin, if we don't or won't let go, whatever that sin might be, we cannot receive God's forgiveness. It's as we confess that, as we turn away from that sin, then we can be put right uh, in, in, in a relationship with him again. And Jesus is not suggesting here for a moment that we are losing our salvation or that we fall out of God's grace because we have been bought with a great price, the the precious blood of Jesus. But what happens is this, that this sin of unforgiveness, like any other sin, affects our relationship with God. Uh, it gets in the way. It mars, it spoils, it tarnishes the presence of God in our lives. I was wondering this morning how to finish this, uh, this talk on this uh, story. And uh, I remember a story I've, uh, I've told a few years back, and uh, forgive me for repeating it, but it's, it's, it's a great story. And it's a story, whenever I think of uh, forgiveness, I, I always think of that, that great Dutch Christian, Corrie ten Boom, yes? And, you know, there's so many stories about her and the way that she forgave. She was uh, caught up in the Second World War, and she was, um, suffered so much at the hands of the Nazis. And then her subsequent struggle about forgiving those who um, abused her. And on one occasion, she tells the story of uh, not being able to forget uh, a wrong that had been done to her. And she had forgiven the person, but she kept returning in her mind to this incident. She couldn't sleep, and finally she cried out to God for help in putting this problem to rest. And Corrie says that God's help came in the form of a kindly old Lutheran pastor. And she confessed her failure to sleep for the last two weeks. And uh, he said this to her. He said, up in the church tower is a bell which, if rung, uh, sorry, which is rung by pulling on a rope. But you know what? After the sexton lets go of the rope, the bell keeps on swinging. First ding, then dong. Slower and slower until there's a final dong and then it stops. I believe the same thing is true for, of forgiveness. When we forgive, we take our hand off the rope.
But if we have been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while, but they're just the ding-dongs of an old bell slowing down. (laughs) And Corrie writes this. And so it proved to be. There were a few more sleepless nights, a couple of dings when the subject came up in my conversations. But the force, which was my willingness in the matter, had gone out of them. They came less and less often, and at the last stopped altogether. I just want to encourage you this morning. Maybe right from the very start of this talk, you have just sensed that in some way this is for you because you've known what this is about for you personally. And I just want you this morning to just to let go of that rope. It may be that those who have hurt you long ago, perhaps in your childhood, maybe you have suffered neglect at the hands of those who should have offered you security and protection. Maybe that person that you are so angry with is no longer alive, but you're holding on. You're holding on to that grievance. You will not let go of that rope. Maybe you feel that you did not deserve the treatment that you got from a person. You felt it was unfair, unjust, unreasonable. And every time you think about it, you feel a a pain in your heart and anxiety and anger. How could I have been treated in that way, you ask? Maybe when a person's name is mentioned, a certain person, you feel bitter. You don't like feeling this way, but you can't seem to help yourself. And I believe God would just say to you this morning, let go of the rope. For some of you, the person that you have most trouble forgiving is yourself. You look back with great regret on your life of the things that you've said, the things that you've done. And if you could live your life all over again, there's no way that you would have been so foolish. You wouldn't have made those same mistakes. Maybe this morning, you are someone who believes that you've gone too far. You believe that not even God himself could forgive you for what you have done. And I would say to you that that's a lie of the devil. Because the God who created you The God who knew you before you were born, who loves you with an everlasting love. And this morning, he wants you to know that as he reaches his great big fatherly hand down to you, he just wants you to respond to him. God invites you to receive his forgiveness. He offers you a new start, a life free of guilt, self-condemnation. And I think you'd be crazy to refuse that. Let's pray together.